Our scripture reading is going to be all of Revelation 20, all 15 verses of Revelation 20, which is kind of a big end times passage. Uh, There's a lot more in scripture about this topic, uh, but a number of the things we're going to touch on tonight uh, do come out of Revelation chapter 20. So I hope that this sermon is interesting to you in the sense that there's some really kind of very exciting and interesting ideas in the Bible about the end times, but so that you'll learn, you'll learn something, I hope and pray. But most of all, my prayer is that as we, as we study this together tonight, that you will be greatly comforted. Um, you know, that was the focus of those first two catechism questions. How are these items a comfort to you? We're going to talk about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, but also a number of other topics. For all of these end time topics, that's my prayer as your pastor, that this message will be a comfort to you. Revelation 20, uh, this is God's holy and infallible word. We'll touch on a number of these items in the message, but not I'm not going to try to touch on all of them. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the the devil who deceived them was was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word. This is what was revealed to the disciple John about what would happen in the future. So what do all Christians believe about the end times? You might have a couple of initial thoughts about that phrase, what all Christians believe about the end times. One is, Christians have so many different ideas about the end times, this is going to be a very short sermon. There just isn't much, it would seem, that Christians agree on. Second, you might think we just don't know a whole lot about the end times. Jesus is coming again. Those who belong to Jesus are going to heaven. Those who don't belong to Jesus will go to hell in everlasting punishment. And that's about all we can say. Again, hardly enough to fill a whole sermon. But the fact is the Bible does reveal to us quite a bit about the end times. And I think you might be surprised about what about all that Christians do agree on. There are clearly differences that Christians have. We'll touch on some of those tonight, but there is a lot that we agree on in this topic, just as we saw there's a whole lot that we agree on when we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, how we're saved, what the church is about, and so on and so on as we've been going through this series. As I said when we started this this evening series back in September, we're living in times, I believe, uh, when Christians must stay together and be unified in the face of unbelief, in the face of Islam, persecution, our unity with believers everywhere is more important than our differences. And I believe uh, the, the church in our country and, and around the world really has come to believe that and see that. So what do all Christians believe about the end times? One, uh, all Christians believe in something called the millennium. And that's a term that comes out of Revelation 20. A millennium is a time period of a thousand years during which we read, Satan will be bound, that's verse 2, and Jesus will reign with the saints, that's verse 4. All Christians believe this. It's right there in the Bible. We read it. You've maybe heard about amillennials, premillennials, postmillennials. There are different takes on the when and the how of this millennium of Revelation 20. Some people take it as a literal thousand years, others as more of a metaphorical thousand years. It's tough because clearly there is a lot of symbolic language in the Bible. You know, for example, though Jesus talks about the gates of hell, it doesn't mean that we believe hell has to have actual physical uh, gates. Maybe it does, but it doesn't mean it has to. Under his wings, you'll find refuge certainly does not mean that God has actual wings. And if the devil isn't literally bound with a literal 
chain, as Revelation 20 says, that does not mean our Bible is wrong. It means it's symbolic language. By far, most of the time, it's very clear when biblical language is metaphorical. Sometimes, some places, it's trickier, and we don't know with 100% accuracy what's literal, what's not, and then we depend on sound Bible interpreters, people that we trust, people that spend their lives studying this to help us, uh, to guide us. Other, another big difference besides a literal versus metaphorical thousand years on the millennium has to do with when the millennium is. Some believe it's in the future, and there are other people who believe it's right now, we're in the millennium. Not too many churches demand a certain belief about all the details of the end times, and Faith Church certainly doesn't do that. But I go with many Christians in the history of the church, uh, the majority of Reformed folks who believe the millennium is now, and that it's a figurative a thousand years. A thousand years is used other times in the Bible as a number of completeness and fullness. So I think the millennium is that perfect length of time God has ordained for there to be between Jesus' first and second comings. And we're in between that. In the millennium, which I believe is now, Jesus reigns like Revelation 20 says. We confess he is seated at the right hand of God. God has given him all authority and power. And Satan is bound in the millennium, which is now, as Revelation 20 says, in the sense that God keeps him from doing all that he could do. God has chained Satan in the sense that he's held back for the gospel to go out to the nations. The world would be much, much worse if Satan were unchained. I think the saints in Revelation 20, that's talking about those who reign with Jesus and have experienced the first resurrection. Did you catch that in there? I think those are either the saints who have already died and are in heaven, or they are you and me, these saints reigning with Jesus in the millennium. We're experiencing that first resurrection of Revelation 20 because we've been raised to new life. A lot of people look at that as the first resurrection. We're raised from the dead of our, of our sin, and we reign with Jesus today as his prophets, priests, and kings. You know, of course, that the smartest Christians are pan-millennials. They trust everything is going to pan out in the end. But all Christians believe in the millennium, that Jesus reigns in the millennium, that Satan is bound during the millennium, and that the saints reign with Jesus during that time. Something else besides the millennium that all Christians believe about the end times. All Christians believe there's a future for the Jewish people in Jesus. Romans 11.25. Romans 11 is the big chapter on what's going on with Israel today and in the future. Romans 11.25 says, Israel 
has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Though Israel rejected Christ in Jesus' day, their hearts were hardened. God isn't totally finished with them. God calls Jewish people as well as Gentiles, that's all the rest of us who aren't Jewish, calls us all to faith in his son. Romans 11 says that God is going to graft back in the natural branches that were cut off when they rejected Christ. That's kind of the the general picture. Some people add a whole lot more details to it. They say there's going to be a reinstitution of Jewish sacrifices in the future. There's going to be a reestablishment of the nation of Israel so that Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. And so they think our country should make political decisions on the world scene with the intent of helping see through that plan of God for the physical nation of Israel in the future. Some of believing that, some of that has to do with taking a more literal reading of certain passages versus a more metaphorical reading, like I talked about earlier. I believe on some of those details that Scripture itself tells us when it's talking about the new Israel, it's talking about the church, Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus, not necessarily a new upcoming state of Israel where Jesus will reign. And the the new Jerusalem, I believe, is language for heaven, according to the Bible, not uh, a new Jerusalem as the political center of the world with Jesus there as king. That God has not forgotten the original branches is clear. The Bible says it. He calls all people to believe in his son, Jew and Gentile alike, but there seems to be something about the Jewish people that he may open their hearts in a special way uh, to believe in his son as we approach the very end. And the fact is, many, many more Jewish people believe in Jesus today than in previous centuries. More people came, more Jewish people came to faith in Jesus in the 20th century than all the 19 centuries before it combined, we believe. So God is definitely doing some of this ingrafting of the natural branches that Romans 11 is talking about as, as Jewish people come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as we do. Persecution of believers will be part of the end times. Persecution. This is just one aspect of what are sometimes called the days of distress. We talk about, in our passage, this big battle looming, wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters. What all is going to happen and what that all means That's a challenge. Persecution is a piece of that days of distress. Jesus says, all men will hate you because of me. We read in Luke 21 that Christians will be dragged before officials. And it says they're betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. 
Jesus says, some will even be put to death because of me. Hebrews 11, some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put to death. All of those verses, like a lot of biblical prophecies, by the way, have multiple fulfillments. They're referring to persecutions that have always gone on in history, ones in the past, ones that would be ahead under Nero and the Roman Empire for believers in the New Testament, but also persecution farther ahead from the New Testament times in the future uh, to today and even in our future. Most Christians agree, agree that somehow this persecution against the people of God that has always existed will intensify at the end of time because Jesus says if the Lord had not cut short those days, talking about the days of distress very near the end, no one would survive. It's Mark 13, 20. Though persecution is great and widespread now already in our world, I think that means it may get worse, perhaps become more prevalent in our nation. We don't know for sure, of course, but it would seem likely from what the Bible says about the very end of time. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. Also, all Christians believe in the Antichrist. 1 John 2.18 says, This is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. As the Bible indicates that there, at the very end of time, there will be a figure who will oppose Christ. The Antichrist is closely identified with Satan, but seems to be someone different who serves Satan. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he's called the man of lawlessness who will oppose and will, who, who will exalt himself over everything that is called God. Some people suggest that one world government will be formed to do his bidding. A lot of people see the beast in Revelation 13 as that final end-time Antichrist. And we read there in Revelation 13 that everyone will be forced to receive the mark of the beast. What that means is hard to say, but some people think that with advances in technology, this might literally happen. There'll be some sort of mark identification and that we're getting closer to it. Who will the Antichrist be that the Bible prophesies about? We don't know. As 1 John 2.18 says, there have been many Antichrists throughout history, in a sense, who have sought to hurt God's people. And since the fall, there has always been a spirit of Antichrist, of course, but it seems that there will be one main one at the end. And for all we know, that end-time Antichrist is alive now somewhere and gaining power. In the Apostles' Creed, we say with all Christians, I believe in the resurrection of the body. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord Himself will come down from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. When a believer dies their soul goes immediately to be with Jesus in heaven. And then, when Jesus returns, there will be a final resurrection, like 1 Corinthians 15.42 tells us. In the twinkling of an eye, 
our bodies will be raised from the grave and changed into glorious bodies that will be reunited with our souls. Christians who are still alive when Christ comes will receive their new bodies at the same time. And that means that believers, if that resurrection of the body is still coming, it means that believers who have died and are in heaven now have no bodies. We read that from the catechism. But they are consciously alive and with Jesus. How you can exist that way as only a soul, I don't know. But certainly God can handle that. And then when Jesus returns, we'll all receive perfect bodies. And that means, uh, contrary to, to what you see in cartoons and on TV, we won't be spirits floating around in heaven. The Bible says we'll have bodies and probably enough similar to our ones now that we'll recognize each other. They'll be perfect. There'll be no flaws, no decay. Also, all believers believe in the rapture, which will happen around this same time. Rapture is a biblical word. It's from the Latin rapturo, and it's from the Latin Vulgate, which was the only translation of the Bible, really, for the people until the time of the Reformation. Um, and the word comes from the Vulgate, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, talking about Jesus coming on the clouds. And then it says, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them. And that caught up is the term the Latin term that we get the English word rapture from. We usually think of the rapture in a very specific way. The Left Behind series, bumper stickers, in case of rapture, this vehicle will be unmanned. That's a very particular view of the rapture that um, folks by the name of dispensationalists have. I don't believe the rapture will work the way they say but I certainly believe what the Bible says about believers being caught up in the air to meet our coming King as Jesus descends with the saints who are already in heaven. It's going to be glorious. Paul says we're going to meet him in the air. All Christians also believe that there will be a final judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, says Revelations 20.11. Everyone will stand before it. All who have already died will be summoned from the dead to appear before the judgment throne, as are all who are alive on earth when Jesus returns. And then verse 12 of Revelation 20 says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books, books were open, books plural. The Bible talks about a number of books we're not going to get into those tonight, but we read that the book of life will be the last book opened on Judgment Day. Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a very scary thought, and it should be. But if we believe in Jesus, the Bible says we can be certain that our name will be found in that book of life. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So 
not just non-believers will appear before the judgment seat, but those who belong to Jesus too. Christians too, we read in Matthew 12, will have to give account for their actions and every careless word they have spoken. But there's going to be a difference in what goes down on Judgment Day. For Christians, our sins will be revealed on that day as forgiven. And so Judgment Day will be a glorious day of rejoicing that the blood of Jesus really does cover sin. Christ is coming to judge everyone, but only those who don't believe will be convicted. And to those who belong to the Lord in this life, Jesus is going to say, the Bible says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. And at that moment, if you think about it, every disappointment you've had, every sacrifice, all those moments of suffering, pain, every difficult day will have been worthwhile just to hear your Savior's voice say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And we know he will say that because of the work of Jesus. Finally, all Christians believe in the life everlasting. This is eternal life. In heaven, the Bible usually says heaven as the new heavens and new earth. There's a lot we don't know about heaven. One theologian describes heaven as an unknown region with a well-known inhabitant. And that's a pretty good way to think about it. We know God will be there. We will be present with him in a new and perfect way unlike anything we've ever experienced of his presence here on earth. And we experience his presence in very special and intimate and powerful ways in our lives on this earth. But it's not even close to experiencing his presence perfectly in glory. Richard Baxter was a Puritan. He wrote these lines about heaven and life everlasting. My knowledge of that life is small, The eye of faith is dim, but it's enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. As the Catechism says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no one can imagine what God has in store. A great theologian in our tradition, Abraham Kuyper, believes that many of the fine arts, like music and dance, will be enjoyed in glory. Others have thought that perhaps even the technological advances that mankind has made will continue on into eternity. Billy Graham supposes that this entire huge, and that's an understatement to say huge universe, you know that, that we can't even comprehend it. Billy Graham imagines that it's that big and expansive for God's people to explore fully in glory. Another theologian says this about eternal life and what it may be like. Listen, it's kind of a long quote. The caricature of heaven as an eternity of idleness has no basis in Scripture. Instead, the New Testament 
thoughts about this, the New Testament conception unites the two thoughts of being with Christ and of service for Christ. This blending is definitely set forth in the last chapter of Revelation, the quote goes on, where we read of those who serve him there and see his face. Here in heaven, the life of contemplation and the life of active service are welded together as being not only compatible, but absolutely necessary for life everlasting to be complete. He goes on, but remember that if there is to be service there too, the exercising ground for service is here and now. He says, I do not know what we are in this world for unless it is to apprentice us for heaven. Life on earth is a bewilderment unless we are being trained for a nobler work which lies beyond the grave. We don't know all the details, but we know the life everlasting will be life with God, life with his people eternally, sin gone, the devil completely and totally cast away, and I think somehow we'll have plenty to do too. Amen.